the scripture for this morning's sermon comes from an epistle uh, from Roman, I mean, excuse me, from Corinthians, the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. It is the 13th chapter, probably one of the most famous single chapters in all of the letters uh, that Paul wrote. You may remain seated for the reading of this epistle lesson from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I do have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, And if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we only know in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now, faith Hope and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. The word of God for the people of God. Thank I cannot hear these words from 1 Corinthians 13 without thinking of white dresses and rented tuxedos and marriage vows, colorful flowers, beautiful music. Uh, It is often called the wedding passage, and I want you to know that I have lovingly and joyfully uh, shared that scripture in weddings more times over the course of my ministry than all other particular scriptures combined, probably. It is so rich in meaning, especially when we look beyond the, the obvious romantic inclinations. And that's something that sometimes is hard to do. We, uh, many people think of love simply as a feeling we have for someone else. I like the response. It's love is something you give to somebody even though they don't want it. <laughs> a good, warm, romantic, sentimental feeling. And I'm in favor of good feelings. But there's a problem with stopping there. Feelings are undependable unpredictable, 
sometimes even uncontrollable. You can't always decide how you're going to feel. You just feel. Circumstances sometimes alter the way we approach things, the feelings we have. And consequently, when you limit your understanding of love that way, many people who think they are in love with such terms fall out of love as quickly as they fall into it. So what is this thing we call love? It was 1984. I'm going to date myself here. Um, Tina Turner. Uh, Some of you are that old. Tina Turner released an album, and yes, we called them albums back then. The album was Private Dancer, and on it was a song that became her first real hit. The title was in form of a question. And I'm going to get the choir to help me with this. Ready? One, two, three. What's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? (laughs) I think we're on to something. If you don't remember anything else about this service, you will remember that on January 30th, 2022, the famous historic Ainsworth Choir covered Tina Turner (laughs) and did it well. Thank you. What's love got to do with it? That's a, a fair question. It's an important question. And Tina's answer coming out of a bad marriage was rather sad and minimal. As you heard and you remember, it's just a second-hand emotion. It will fool you. It will hurt you. It will leave you. It will make you feel empty. Now, interestingly, roughly 2,000 years before Tina Turner, Paul, the apostle, asked the same question. Think about that. That's what he's asking here. What's love got to do with it? 1 Corinthians 13, not only the wedding chapter, but the love chapter, we call it. And it asks that question. What's love got to do with life, with, with our relationship with God, with each other? What's love got to do with it? Paul was writing to a, a struggling church, a confused church trying to find its way in a, in a struggling world about who it was and how it was to minister, how they were come to come together under the guidance of God's Spirit, how they were going to live out their faith. Our United Methodist Church, like so many before us and even today, is struggling. Why is that? How is it that over and over in our society we get to a place of division and brokenness? How did we get here? I want to suggest that if you go back in time and look at at historical incidents in the life 
of any church, any denomination, you will find that in every church controversy, whether denomination or local, that controversy began when love left the building. Paul says love is at the heart of everything. It is at the heart of God's love for us. It is at the heart of our love for others. And without it, without it, he says every spiritual gift within will end. Tongues, prophecy, great buildings, mountain excavations, charity, everything. You can give up everything you have to a great cause, but ultimately... It will be meaningless, Paul says, in eternity without love. I think there's a beautiful irony uh, in, in the fact that the one thing that lasts forever is the love that is given away. Think about that. Not love in and of itself, not a noun, but a verb, an action that is given away and it lasts forever. We can trust the permanence and persistence of divine love lived out and experienced in our human life. It, it becomes a balm in Gilead. The circle becomes unbroken. I followed Mother Teresa's um, life and ministry. Uh, one time she was asked by a young man why she always talked about this Jesus stuff. That was the way he phrased the question. What, what's all this Jesus stuff? He said he was going to work among the poor uh, just like she was doing, uh, to do good works for charity. But he was going to do it without the trappings of the G Jesus baggage. Mother Teresa responded this way. She said, go and work 20 years or a lifetime among the poorest of the poor. Then come back and tell me how you did it. I know that the only way I've been able to do it is because of Jesus. Her faith, her understanding of Jesus gave her the ability to be a doer. A doer not just for a week or a season or a year, but for a lifetime. That kind of love, Paul says, endures and causes life to endure. When I was right out of college, um, I got a job at St. Luke United Methodist Church in Columbus, but it was not at the church. It was inner city work uh, in one of the poor areas of Columbus. Uh, it was nothing like Mother Teresa. I don't mean to even begin to suggest that, but it was, it was difficult work um, in some ways, uh, a lot like making outreach. Uh, we worked with children, we worked with adults, we counseled, we fed I want to tell you that uh, I found it very rewarding, but after about five and a half years, I was burned out. And looking back on it, I realized that the reason was something missing in me. That love that undergirds everything. I do not step into this historic pulpit this morning um, to pat you on the back, and I hope you won't be offended by that, or to tell you how good you are. Remember that we, Scripture says we all fall short of the glory of God. I'm, I'm not here to berate you either, but I'm here rather to remind us how blessed we are.
and to commend us to the cause and the will of God who calls us to represent the highest quality of love possible. Possibly, possible only because it is found in the presence and the person of Jesus. In the first part of this chapter, Paul is adamant. He really is. I mean, he does not pull any punches. If I speak in the tongues of humans and of angels and don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He's insulting himself. If I have prophetic powers and a faith so as to remove mountains and have not love, I gain nothing. It is pointless, he says. If I give everything I have to the poor but have not love, I am nothing. Paul is adamant. He raises the question for us. How do we define our church here at Mulberry? How do we define our ministry? Our very relationship calls us to go from this sanctuary to love people, to extend a helping hand, to show mercy, to offer compassion to those who are hurting. And if we do not do that, if it remains, that love that we claim remains here, then, then what are we about? Paul is saying, you take away love and all you have left is a big building. Maybe a very nice museum. I'm thankful for the church in my life. It has molded me beginning here at Mulberry as a child. And over the years, it has transformed me because the church is the only institution in our world which challenges us again and again and again to be better than we are. Not smarter, not richer, not more productive, not more successful, but better. Do you notice that at the heart of our communion, liturgy is the confession of our sins, our brokenness, our shortcomings? And yet Jesus offers at that table redemption and wholeness. We come to a service on Sunday morning or to Sunday school or small groups during the week knowing that at some point somebody will speak to this. And the, the lesson will ultimately lead to the conclusion we aren't all that we ought to be. God means for us to be more than we are today and we can commit ourselves you and me to that higher goal and of course the source of that power Paul claims and we know is God God loves us with a love that never wavers never ends a love that is unconditional and then he asks us to pass that love along to others And I'm quite sure that of all the gifts that God gives us, as Paul understands, as Jesus understands, love is at the heart. It is the greatest gift of all. And so 1 Corinthians 13 calls us, the church, to be accountable for our actions, for our behavior. It's an invitation to step back, to take a breath, to reboot, to reframe. It's about claiming this gift that can be so easily overlooked. 
It is about salvation at its heart. I find myself uh, turning off the news these days. I need to be informed, but there doesn't seem to be much good news. The world is full of division and brokenness. But there's a call of Scripture for us, you and I, to be difference makers. Our Jewish friends often speak of repairing the world, a kind of partnership with God to shape a better, more just society. We Christians refer to saving the world, while some Christians misinterpret this only as saving people from this world to go to heaven. A more biblical understanding of saving involves healing, restoration, making whole, kind of like a doctor. And when our Christian tradition speaks of Jesus as the great physician, it basically means that the doctor is in the house. That's what the theological word incarnation means, that the saving and healing God has come to us to live with us, to dwell with us as a broken world, to love us. What's love got to do with it? 1 Corinthians 13 gives us an answer. What are we saved for? That is the answer and the question even that that moves us beyond just hearing the Scripture and liking the words. We are saved to love. We are set free to love. We are empowered, equipped, enabled to love. That's what it means to be saved. We are saved for love. I read the story about a minister who observed a little girl who came into the sanctuary every day during the week and just sat near the front, near the altar, and just was quiet for a little while and then got up and and left. She did this every day for quite a while, and finally the minister's curiosity got the best of him, and he approached her on the way out one day and asked her, he said, said, little girl, um, I'm glad you're here, but in your prayers, what did you ask of Jesus? Oh, she replied, I didn't ask him for anything. I was just there loving him for a little while. It's not just a ritual when we come to church. It has the opportunity, the possibility of being a love feast. As you... I think most of you are aware my wife Flo is on staff at Centenary United Methodist Church, so we don't get to worship together very often except for today. And after we get home, uh, normally when we are worshiping separately, we will ask each other, well, how was church today? I'm going to be careful how I ask that question, (laughs) especially about the sermon. How was church today? Well, no matter how it was, if the weather was cold and the attendance was down, if the choir sang off-key, which it never does, (laughs) let me just qualify that, if the sermon is not up to par, no matter how church was in those particulars, 
if you have spent some time just loving God in this place, you can say church was great. It's just wonderful. Paul says that's where it begins. Let's not forget that. We, we can remember the particular scriptures on any, any, given, any given Sunday, but, but the umbrella gift of God is this love. This relationship, even as one of the children said, taking time to love. Whatever else may happen here before this altar this morning, I hope that each of us can do regularly, joyfully, what that little girl was doing. Jesus says that's where it begins. On one occasion, Jesus was asked by a lawyer to sum up the essence of the teachings of Moses. He reached back into his Hebrew Bible, his Hebrew scripture to Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And he said, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He said, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then in Matthew's version, he added, on these two, love of God and love of neighbor, hang all the laws, everything else, all the prophets, everything that Moses wrote, everything in the scriptures that God has been trying to tell you. This is it. Love God, love your neighbor. And Matthew adds, and while you're at it, it's okay to love yourself. Jesus began the most revolutionary moment, a movement in all of human history, a movement grounded in the unconditional love of God for us and for the world. It is a movement mandating that people live that love. Did I just use the word mandate? There's a lot of talk about mandate in our culture across the country, even locally. But Jesus mandates that we love. It's not an option. It's for everybody. Now abide these three. Faith, have it, it leads to hope. And faith and hope lead to love. And the greatest of this, of these, is love. Paul doesn't claim that it's easy, but he does suggest to us strongly that it's not an option. How do we interpret that in our ministry today? If I approach the enemy on the other side of the political aisle without love, I am nothing. If I look at one who is different from me, a different race, a different orientation, a different ethnicity, with anything other than love, I'm just in the way. If I stand in silent acceptance of the ills around me, then I'm spinning my heels and I'm adding to the problem. This is a critical time for our church. Now, I don't mean that it's necessarily any more critical. I think every era of a church's life is critical. 
That's always true. But we must remember, I, I encourage you, I ask you to remember that in this transition year, it's not just about a new appointment in June. It will not be solely on him or her to be representative of the love of God in this place. It's you and me, and it starts now. What love means for us, what love means to God, what love does. What if? What if? And I'll just leave it to your imagination, to your vision. What if? What if we, each and every one, found ways to take up that godly mandate? I've been rethinking my use of Tina Turner's song this past week. Uh, almost every day I said, I'm, I'm regretting that, I, that I, I latched on to her and to that title because it has gotten stuck in my head. An earworm, if you know what that is. I find myself humming it. I, I, I think I notice Flo just leaving the room at times just because I don't even know that I'm, I'm aware that I'm doing it. I'm singing it. I'm even, I even dreamed about it one night. I can't let it go. It's annoying. But then I think maybe that's the way it should be. Maybe that's the way. It should be annoying enough that we ask it more often than we don't ask it. Maybe it ought to linger in our hearts and in our minds. God pleading for us to answer the question, what's love got to do, my love got to do with your life here and now? What does love have to do with it? Paul asked the question. I, I hope you won't hold it against me, but I hope you get the earworm this week and that it lingers in your heart, that question, and in your mind. Maybe to the point of being an annoying, a beautiful annoying reminder that God is asking you for a worthy answer and a worthy life in Jesus Christ. A love that is no longer spoken just casually or lightly, but lived fully in the presence of and by the power of God in Christ Jesus. And so the question one more time, we won't sing it, but the question one more time, what's love got to do with it? And the answer is everything. Everything. And both Jesus and Paul reminds us it's all or nothing. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, let it be so. Amen.